Good morning. Had a very uh, somewhat strange, happen- very strange happening in my house this week. Monday afternoon, my two boys went to play with the neighbors, and my youngest son was asleep, and it was my day off, and the house was completely quiet for two hours. And that never, ha- that is, I can't remember the last time that happened. But what happened is I, I was, I went downstairs and I, uh, I was good. I worked out. I didn't just lay on the couch and I went. But as I was working out, I was watching a movie and I ended up watching the whole thing because I didn't realize I'd have that much time. But I watched this film called Into the Abyss. And it was a documentary about a young man that was on death row. And I started watching this movie and it was all about these two very young guys that had uh, ended up killing three people and they had killed them over a car. And one of the guys was now on death row and the other guy was life in prison. And it was all about the things that go with it. And as I started watching this movie, uh, to be honest, it was really depressing. It was just very sad. And it was sad because you started to see the effects of their sin and how far reaching it was and the way it went out and what went on. You saw the way it had affected their own family. You saw the way it had affected the victim's family. You'd seen their friends and all this stuff. And, and it went on and on. But as, as I watched the movie, there was an interesting thing that started to kind of come out in this pattern that was emerging throughout the movie as they're talking about it. And, and one of it was one of the young men uh, who had committed this murder when he was 18 years old. He's now 28. He's been in prison for 10 years on death row. Turns out his father had also committed murder and was in prison for life in prison and, and had been in prison for 40 years. And so as I was watching that, I started to see this picture of, of the family that these young men grew up in and what they'd seen modeled and what had gone before them. And then you saw what they did. And, and it was just uh, heartbreaking. And it was really sad as you watched it. And probably the saddest part of the whole movie was the one guy uh, whose father was in jail. They were interviewing him about how he had come and testified for his son for lenience, that they wouldn't give him the death penalty. And, and his testimony was, I was never there. And when I was around, what he saw was a criminal that was awful and did all these horrible things. So please, please have leniency on my son. And so as I thought about this movie and was watching it and throughout the week, I kept coming back to it. It was just kind of weighing on me that that picture of the sin that, that we see and that is around us and the way it affects those around. But but as I as I struggled with that, you know, I watched that movie on on Monday afternoon and then Tuesday morning I came in, and I sat down and I started to work on this sermon from Ezekiel 18 and and there's Ezekiel 18 pulling me out of that, giving us hope and giving us the other side of that. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning is, is Ezekiel chapter 18. Ezekiel is a prophet. Let me just set this uh, scene for you because Ezekiel is really going to give us the flip side of this. uh, When we can get weighed down in this, all the sins that we've seen or the sins of the father, these things that have gone before, how do we overcome that? And Ezekiel tells us, And so the picture that we have, though, in Ezekiel, and we need to set the scene a little bit. If you've been with us, we've been walking right through the Bible, the big picture, what God's doing and how he's doing it. And what we saw is that under Solomon, David and then Solomon, God had united all of Israel in this wonderful kingdom. And they'd done lots of great things and they'd become the greatest nation in the world under Solomon. This is about a thousand B.C. But because of Solomon's sin and because he turns from God and because he starts to do these other things is he takes multiple, multiple wives and he starts to worship their gods and all the things that happen. Israel is ripped in two. It's split. And so what happens is after Solomon, you go through a time where Israel splits and there's the northern kingdom, which is Israel. And they last about 200 years. They have 19 kings and all of them don't follow God. All of them are terrible. And eventually God allows the Assyrians to come in and they take them out. 
And then the southern kingdom lasts a little bit longer. They last a total of 350 years, and that's Judah, and it includes Jerusalem. And they last a little longer. They also have 19 kings, but, but a handful of them follow the Lord, so they last a little longer. But eventually God lets the Babylonians come in and take them out. And the way they do that is pretty awful. They come in and they destroy everything, but then they take the very best with them. They take the smartest and the strongest and the most promising people and they take them back to Babylon and they integrate them into their society because they think, well, these people can be useful. And so that's what happens. And that's the context that Ezekiel is writing into. Ezekiel is a a priest. He becomes a prophet. He's God's prophet. And he he gives him God gives him his word. But as a priest, Ezekiel's job was to work in the temple was to offer sacrifices and do all these things. Well, when Babylon comes in, they destroy the temple. So now Ezekiel is a 30-year-old man in Babylon without a job. He's been trained his whole life to be a priest, and now there's not a temple. There's not even really a a religion set up. And and so here he is, but God calls Ezekiel out, and he says, you're going to be my prophet to the people in captivity. You're going to speak to them. Now, they have this huge problem that's going around, and this is what Ezekiel is going to talk to This morning, as we look at Ezekiel 18, is the people that are in captivity are blaming it all on the generation that went before them. We're in captivity because of what our fathers did, and it's all their fault. And so God gives Ezekiel this word, and he says, I want you to speak to that because that's not right. And so there's a hope here of even though when we're surrounded by sin and the things we see go before us, God says, well, there's still hope. I'm still working. And so that's what we're going to look at in Ezekiel chapter 18. If you don't have a Bible, but you want to follow along with us, there's lots of Bibles in the pew. They're just the ESV Bible, just plain uh, paperback. We're going to be on page 456 if you want to follow along in that Bible. And if you have, if you don't have a Bible, if you're visiting with us today and you don't have one or you never had one or maybe you didn't want one, but you're welcome to take that with you if you would like. That's our gift to you. If you don't have one, we would love for you to take that with you. So with that in mind, we're going to read Ezekiel 18. We're not going to read the whole chapter, but I'll kind of tell you where I'm skipping ahead. If you want to follow along with me, we're going to start in Ezekiel chapter 18, verse one. And it says this, the word of the Lord came to me. What do you mean by repeating this proverb concerning the land of Israel? The father have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. As I live, declares the Lord, this proverb shall no more be used by you in Israel. Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the father as well as the soul of the son is mine. The soul who sins shall die. And then skipping down, we're going to go ahead to to verse 19. Yet you say, why should not the son suffer for the iniquity of the father? When the son has done what is just and right and has been careful to observe all my statutes, he shall surely live. The soul who sins shall die. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. But if a wicked person turns from all his sins that he has committed and keeps all my statutes and does what is just and right, he shall surely live. He shall not die. None of the transgressions that he has committed shall be remembered against him for the righteousness he has done. He shall live. Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live. But when a righteous person turns away from his righteousness and does injustice, 
and does the same abominations that the wicked person does, shall he live? None of the righteous deeds that he done shall, has done shall be remembered. For the treachery of which he is guilty and the sin he has committed, for them he shall die. And then lastly, in verses 30 to 32, Therefore I will judge you, O house of Israel, everyone according to his ways, declares the Lord God. Repent and turn from your, all your transgression, lest iniquity be your ruin. Cast from you all the transgressions that you have committed and make yourself a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord. So turn and live. Let's pray and then we're going to look at that uh, passage together. Lord, we uh, thank you for your word. Uh, We confess this morning as we always do as we, we open your word that without your spirit we are hopelessly lost. Uh, That we cannot understand rightly your word without you coming and opening our eyes to see it and our ears to hear it. So we ask that you would do that, that you would impress upon our hearts where we're off, that you would convict us where we need to be convicted, that you would encourage us where we need encouraging. Uh, We thank you for your word and we thank you for the promise of your spirit with us. And we just ask that you would move freely in this place this morning. We pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. So as we start this today, we're talking a little bit. The backstory, the background to a degree is something that the Bible talks about as generational sins. Or sometimes you may hear a generational curse, which I really hate that phrase. And I'll tell you why in a second. But generational sins and the sins that we see going before us and how those affect those that come after us. And and we're talking a little bit about this this morning. And so as we talk about that, it's something that I feel like when it comes up, oftentimes there's a lot of misunderstanding. There's a lot of bad theology and a lot of bad teaching that goes along with that. So as we start with this idea of generational sins, we're going to first talk about what it's not and then what it is. Make sure that we understand it rightly. And then secondly, we're going to move to how do we break that cycle? And then thirdly, we're going to end with how do we have the power to do that? So let's start with the idea of this, this thing that's in the Bible. It's a biblical idea, but we want to make sure we're seeing it rightly in this idea of generational sins. If you've ever heard that before, you've ever heard that teaching, maybe you know, maybe you don't, that that really comes from Exodus 20. Exodus 20 being the Ten Commandments. God gives the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20. And right at the beginning, as he's saying, you'll have no other gods and you'll make no idols. You'll have no carved images, nothing like that. In verse five of Exodus 20, he says, you shall now bow down to serve them for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. And then he says this. And this is where this teaching comes from. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. And so what we get a lot of times is we say generational sins. Well, what that means is, and and by the way, this is what it's not. This is the wrong way of looking at it. But we say this, or you may hear this. And what it says is that God's going to punish the kids for the things their parents did. I don't know if you've ever heard that before. I have. I've heard it a lot. I've heard it in the context of a couple is in the hospital with a baby that's sick and somebody shows up that's proclaiming to be a believer. And they say, hey, whatever you did in your life, you need to get right with God. You need to repent because your kid's sick because of what you did. That is what it's not. That is not what this is. And that's not what it means. But oftentimes we hear that. Maybe you've heard that before. Maybe you're under the assumption that that's what Exodus 20 is talking about. And so I want us to kind of clear the table first, because that is what it's not. That is not right. And we'd also say, uh, I've also heard um, 
We'll talk about generational sin and then people will say, well, generational curses. Well, the Bible talks about blessing and curses, curses being the consequences of your sin. But we'll take it and we'll we'll twist it and we'll kind of put it in our language today and we'll say things like, well, generational curses. What it means is if your father or your grandfather had a sin and they did a thing, well, now God's put a spell on you and now it's in you, too. And so you've got to go. And I've, I've heard this and maybe this makes perfect sense to you. But I've heard people say, well, now what that means is we need to go back and pray for the sins of our father and grandfather so we can break the curse. That's not biblical. Ezekiel 18, what we're going to look at today, blows that blasphemy out of the water. That's not what it means. And so I want us to be real clear that we understand what it's not before we look at what it is. It is not God holding over you something that your father did. Now, I'm going to hold that against you. Right. That makes God into a mean, vindictive God that's paying you back for something your parents did. And that's what Ezekiel 18 says. I don't work that way. That's what God says. And so let us start with that, that that's what it's not. Right. That's what it's not. And I want us to move to actually what it is, what the Bible is teaching and what it's telling us. And to get to that, we even need to think about where does that bad theology come from? And I just told you it comes from Exodus 20. That's where it first shows up. And where people get off. But I want you to hear that again real quickly. Exodus 20 verses 5 and then verse 6 with it. Because verse 5 says that God is a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. But listen to the very last part of those who hate me. That's what it says. Those who hate me. And then it says, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. And so we need to think about what that means in light of what Ezekiel 18 says. We need to have a proper biblical balance between the two. And so look at verses 2, 3, and 4 of Ezekiel 18. Ezekiel 18 says this. It says, What do you mean by repeating the proverb concerning the land of Israel? The father have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. As I live, declares the Lord, this proverb shall no more be used by you in Israel. Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the father as well as the soul of the son is mine. The soul who sins shall die. What God's saying is right there at the beginning. He says, I hear people saying this proverb over and over that the fathers have done things. They've eaten the sour grapes, but the kids are getting the consequences. They're the ones that I'm holding it against. And he says, quit saying that. Quit using that proverb, right? What God is starting to show us and what he's starting to tell us here, when you go back and you look at Exodus 20 and you you see the fullness of what he says, he says, I'll visit the iniquities to the third and fourth generation. But then he says of those who hate me. What, What it's talking about when we talk about generational sins is when we take the sins that we've seen modeled and gone before us and, and we let them infect our own heart and then they become our sins. They become into our life and we embrace those. And then that's when it continues on. You see the difference. It's not because you're an innocent person and your father did something bad. So now God's going to get you. It's because you see what happens and it becomes your sin. You have a personal accountability as it becomes to come into yours. Look at uh, or actually just with two through four there. Think about that for just a second. That God says the opposite of that. I want you to think uh, of an example uh, on how we can see that. Think about it in terms of this. Uh, racism. That was, that was one that came to mind to me as I was, I was thinking about this this week. If you grow up in a household 
where racism is, is clearly modeled for you. There's a looking down on other cultures and other people and other things, and you see that, and it's constantly put before you. There is, there is a, a very real possibility that you're going to grow up having some of those same thoughts and you're going to struggle with that same thing. Which, by the way, racism, all racism, is a complete misunderstanding of how pers- each person is made in the image of God. We're rebelling against what God's word clearly tells us, that all are made in his image. And so when we act like these people over here, because they look differently, are not quite as up to par as these people over here, that's a c- complete, disgusting Uh, misuse of what God tells us. But what happens is, is if you grow up in a home like that and you start to see that and it's modeled for you, and then at some point it becomes your own, right? There's, there's at some point in there that you have a personal responsibility that you can either adopt the views that you've been raised with and you've seen modeled, or you can say, you know what? I don't think that's right. And God tells us his, his laws are written on our hearts. He's given us a conscience. He's given us his word, but there becomes a point where it becomes Uh, personal responsibility. And so when we talk about the iniquity being visited to the next generation and the next generation, what's happening is we're seeing bad things modeled or we're seeing sins or we're seeing whatever, but then we're taking it to heart and then it's becoming our own sin. We're personally responsible. It's not God's holding it against you what your father did. It's for your own sin that you're now guilty. There's a difference there. And so that blows out of the water the, the baby that's sick. And so what did you do? Because God's punishing him. That's, that's not what it's talking about. And so we want to make sure we get that. But I, what I do want to balance that with is there are real consequences for sin. If your father or whoever is, is modeling something and you see it or there's, there's bad sins going on, there will be consequences to those. You see it all throughout the Bible. You see perfect examples through it. If you've been with us as we walk through this series, we've seen it over and over and over. If you go back to Deuteronomy, Moses, the people are about to take the promised land, and he says, don't mix with the people in the land where you're going. You drive them out and you don't take their idols and you don't mix worship with the true God with false idols. And he tells Joshua, and then Joshua gets up and he tells everybody, when we take the land, you drive them out, you don't do this. And everybody goes, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so Joshua starts to do that, and then Joshua gets old and dies, and the next generation goes, ah, it's not that big of a deal. And they leave them. And so then they start to mix, and then they start to intermingle, and then their religion gets mixed with the pagan religion of the day. And eventually, as you read in Judges, as we we follow that through, generation after generation after generation keeps embracing the same sins that their father does. And they intermarry and they do all these things and you end up in Judges with people doing things like child sacrifice. Because that's what the pagan religions did. And it's gotten so mixed up. And so you see that sin from one generation to the next and they, they take it to heart and it becomes theirs over and over and you can see how this happens. It makes perfect sense. There's a perfect example in my house. I'm, I'm reminded of it every day. I have a little boy named Jed who's four years old. He's about to be five. And he idolizes everything I do. It's a good mirror of everything you're doing. Everywhere you go, there he is. He comes in in the morning and he says, Daddy, what are you wearing today? And I say, well, I'm wearing gray pants and a black shirt. And he says, I'll be right back. And he runs to his room and he comes back with two or three pairs of pants and a shirt. This is the closest shirt I've got. And these pants, can you iron these pants for me? Because I want to wear these pants. And he's, or I'll come downstairs and Joanna will go down with him before in the morning sometimes. And she'll say, what do you want for breakfast, Jed? And he says, I'm waiting till daddy gets up because I want to see what he's having. 
That's just the way he's so ingrained and I want to do what you're doing. And so you have an awesome responsibility as a parent, as a father, that what you're doing and what you're modeling has real lasting effects on your children. They're watching you. And oftentimes it's stuff that you don't even realize they're watching you. And so it can go one way or the other. But you can see how the sins of the father can have dire consequences on the sins of the son when you're modeling that. Right. If I go, there's times I'll go and I'll lay down on the floor with my Bible in the living room and I'll start reading and Jed will come lay next to me and he'll go get his his uh, children's Bible. And so there's great things. And then there's times when I lose my temper and then there he is standing there watching me. Or there's been times I used to say, and I've kind of quit doing it because both my boys started doing it. I used to do this thing all the time when I got frustrated. I just go, ah, I got to do that and make that noise. I go, ah. And I just noticed here's Asher and Jed walking around going, ah, ah, ah. And you're like, oh, maybe I should stop doing that because they're seeing it modeled. They're seeing it in all these things. And, you know, the thing that was heartbreaking to me as I watched that film I was talking about at the beginning. That's exactly what came to light as you watch the movie. Here's this guy that he committed murder and now he's on death row. And there was his dad who was never around who's in jail for murder. And that's what he saw. And it's just this weight of depressing. You're going, what in the world? You see the sin in the way it's modeled and what's there. And then they, they see it in the next generation, but they take it to be their own. And that's what we want to make sure we're seeing. That's what happens when we take it to be their own. Maybe you've heard a lot of you here. Some of you are visiting today through the, our celebration that we're going to have later with Jericho House. If you've ever heard Larry McKenna, who runs Jericho House, his testimony he started drinking, I think it was when he was 12 years old. Somebody can correct me if I'm, I'm wrong on that. But I think it was when he was 12 years old because he grew up in a household where he saw that as the norm. He saw it all the time. And he grew up with it and then he took that and he made it his own. And Larry will tell you, though, there came a time when here his drinking and all his things that he had a personal responsibility for. it. Yes, he got started on a terrible footing. And there's many of us in that situation, many of you today that maybe had that. You had terrible models and you had terrible things and you had lots of things come into your life. But there's still a point where it becomes your own. It becomes your own sin. And so it's a very hard thing to think about. But when we think biblically about the sins of the fathers being passed on, there's still a personal responsibility there. And that's what Ezekiel 18 is telling us. So when we think about what it means, generational Sins, I want to make sure we see it, see it clearly. It's not God holding it over us for something we didn't do. It's not a spell that's been cast that we need some special thing to break this, go back and break the spell. But what it is, is the consequences of sin that we see. And when it gets passed down, it's because of our own hearts then embracing that sin and becoming our own. And we want to make sure that we see that clearly. Because we've got to see that right before we see, well, how do we break that spell? How do we break that curse or however you want to say it? The generational sins, how do we break it? And that's the second thing that we're moving to. So look at verses 19 and 20. How do we break that, uh, that cycle that goes on? Verse 19 and 20. Yet you say, why should not the son suffer for the iniquity of the father? But then God answers, when the son has done what is just and right and has been careful to observe all my statutes, he shall surely live. The soul who sins shall die. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself 
and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. And so what we get is this picture is that God says, if you're these things that have happened and, and it's in the context of Israel here as Ezekiel talks to the nation, they're going, well, it's not our fault. It's our father's fault. And God says, I don't work that way. That your own sins are your own fault. Right? You have personal responsibility. I'm going to judge each person based on themselves. Right. That's what he's telling them. Stop blaming the sins of your fathers for the things that are happening with you. Take responsibility for your own things. So when we talk about the first way to break that cycle, the first way to see it is to stop making excuses. Own what's your own stuff. Own what's your own sin. In the context of a church, this is really important that we see this because he actually says in here when you read through the whole chapter, you're not going to be saved by the righteousness of your father. Right. If you grew up in church and your dad was a really devout believer and did all these great things, you're not saved by how good your dad was. Just as the opposite is true. If you grew up with a horrible role model and all kinds of bad things and terrible stuff and you saw that, that doesn't mean that you're cursed to live this terrible life. God deals individually. And so when we think about that, what that means is we need to stop making excuses for the ones before us. Now, there's very real consequences that come out of those things in bad situations, and I don't want to make light of that. There are. There are absolutely consequences. There are times when you will suffer the consequences of other people's sins even though it wasn't your fault, right? If, if you come from uh, a home where you've seen terrible things and there'll be consequences that come along with that and weigh on you, that's real. There are real things that will be there, but the way you deal with that, the way that you then take that, if you, if you keep making excuses for those things, then we've missed what God's telling us. He says, I will deal with each person as they come. I'm not going to hold that against you. All right, so Matt, no matter where we are, we need to start there, that we need to stop and take accountability for our own things, right? Because that's what God says. But then the second part, look at verses 21 and 22. But if a wicked person turns away from all his sins that he's committed and keeps all my statutes and does what is just and right, he shall surely live and he shall not die. None of the transgressions that he's committed shall be remembered against him for the righteousness that he has done. He shall live. And so what God's telling us is no matter where you are, if you grew up in a terrible situation and you took on some of these sins, even if you adopted them yourselves and you started to walk in those ways that you've seen, no matter where you are, no matter how bad or where things have gotten, at any point you can stop and repent. You can turn from it. You can stop at any moment and start new. God says, I will let you start new. I will let you start afresh. You know, when we talk biblically, we say repent. That's a Bible word. We say that in church a lot. Repent just simply means turning from the way you're going and turning back in the other direction. Biblically, when we talk about it as Christians, what we say the Bible says is all of us, each and every one of us, without fail, our natural default is to be walking away from God. That's what it means to be sinful. We've said that over and over. Sin is ignoring God and the world we're created. That's the way we're made. We're naturally walking away from him. And so when we stop and we turn towards him, he says, I will deal with you graciously. Right. I will I will let you stop at any moment. And it doesn't matter how much has been piled up. It doesn't matter how long you've been walking away from him. It doesn't matter how much was in your family's past that's been passed on. All the stuff that's building and all those things at any moment, God says, you can stop and you turn to me and I will deal with you graciously. 
Now, the hard part of that is that doesn't mean all consequences, earthly consequences, what you have to deal with are gone. Spiritually, they are. And we'll talk about that in just a second. But there'll be earth. There may still be earthly consequences. I think of it a good example. If you've ever seen the movie, Oh, Brother, Where Art Thou? I don't know if you've ever seen that film, but it's a it's a movie. It's it's a it's pretty funny, but uh, it's about three uh, criminals who are out running from the law and they come and they're walking one day and they're walking through the woods and there's this baptism service. And one of the guys decides he's going to get baptized and he's so excited and he goes racing into the water and he gets baptized and he comes out and he says, I've been washed clean. And he says that piggly wiggly that I knocked over, that's gone now. And he starts saying all this stuff and, and the other guys are kind of skeptical and they're like, okay, okay, whatever. And he goes along. But then one of the other guys says, yeah, well, you might have been made right with God but you still owe a debt to the state of Mississippi, right? Which, which that's kind of what we mean. When we turn, yes, God forgives all our sins and he wipes it clean and he does that, but there's still consequences that go along with our actions. And so we want us to see that clearly because when we talk about the consequences and they get passed down and those things, consequences of sin, that's really what we're looking at, that there are still consequences. But at any time, God says you can stop and you can turn. You can turn towards me no matter where you are. And the wonderful thing is when you do, God can start to use you immediately. If you think about the woman at the well, if you know that story, Jesus with the woman at the well, they're going along together and they're talking about all these things. And Jesus calls out sin in her life and tells her you've had five husbands and you're working on number six and you're doing all these things. And she believes she believes Jesus is who he says he is. And she immediately goes and just starts telling people. She's bringing people to G- that day. She goes out and God's using her. And so no matter what you've had or the baggage you've had or where you've come from, when you turn and you repent to God, he can use you. I see it all the time right here in this in, through the Jericho house. I love that ministry because the way we see God working, we're going to celebrate today. Daniel's graduating from the Jericho house. And those that know Daniel know that nine, ten months ago, he was standing in the back where he couldn't sit down, just pacing. He just he couldn't sit still. Right. He had all these things that he was dealing with and God was dealing with him. And now here we are nine and ten months later. And what he's doing is he's going and he's praying with his brothers and holding them accountable. And God's using him. He's using him to to call people to repentance and to deal with what they're dealing. And God's still dealing with him, but he's already using them. And we see that all throughout Scripture. God says, you turn to me and and I will deal with you right where you are. There'll be forgiveness and there'll be repentance. But look here, there's one hard part that I kept struggling with as I read this this week. And it's in verse 21 when he says, he talks about, but if a wicked person turns away from all his sins... That he's committed and he keeps all my statutes and he does what is just, then he shall surely live and he shall not die. Or in verse 20, it says the soul who sins shall die. Well, that's all of us. We've all sinned. The soul who sins shall die. The New Testament says it this way. The wages of sin is death. And so God's saying, but you'll live if you turn from me. But then it's all those that sin shall die. Or it says, you turn from me and you keep all my statutes and you do all of it and then you'll live. How do we do that? How is that possible to do that? And that takes us to the last part. How is it possible? How do we have the power to ever do this? The wages of sin is death. We all have past sins. Uh, as we 
Think about repenting and turning to God. That means keep everything from now on perfectly. How is that possible? How can we possibly ever do that and keep all of it? Right? We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. Jeremiah 17 talks about that we have deceitful hearts that are desperately sick. So how in the world can we turn and keep all of it? How in the world can we get rid of all our sins that were in the past? Because it says the soul who sins shall die. Well, the answer's here and the hope is here in Ezekiel. And it's in verses 30 and 31. Therefore, I will judge you, O house of Israel, everyone according to his own ways, declares the Lord. Repent and turn from all your transgressions, lest your iniquity be your ruin. That's what we're saying. You stop and you turn and you walk from it. And then he says, cast away from you all your transgressions. So get rid of all your sins that you've committed and make for yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. Okay, so there's your answer. Just get a new heart. Your heart is deceitful above all things and it's messed up. So you just get a new heart. So how in the world can we do that? How do we have the power to do that? Well, remember, we're Old Testament. We're several hundred years before Jesus will come. And he's talking about getting a new heart and a new spirit. It's not just here in Ezekiel. Jeremiah, contemporary of Ezekiel, talks about a new heart and a new spirit and a promise of a new heart and a new spirit. And it says this in in Jeremiah 24, 7, God talking to Israel. I will give them a heart to know that I am the Lord and they shall be my people and I will be their God for they shall return to me with their whole heart. Or in Jeremiah 31, 33, for this is the covenant or promise that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And so the only way we can do this, we can get rid of the past sins, the only way we can walk forward trusting him is all things is we need a new heart and a new spirit. But can we do that? Is that possible for us to do? And the answer is no. I'm sorry, but but that's the answer. We, We can't do that. But the good news is when you read in Jeremiah is that we can't do it, but God can. See, Jeremiah says... I will give them a heart to know that I am the Lord. Or in Jeremiah 31, I will put my law on their heart. I will write it on their hearts. I will do for them what they cannot do. Ezekiel is saying, get yourself a new heart and a new spirit. And he doesn't really tell us how here, but Jeremiah does. And in the New Testament, when we get to it, we start to see that God tells us how how that happens. The only way we can get a new heart... And a new spirit is that God walks into the story, the big story, and he comes down and he lives the perfect life. And Jesus Christ, he steps into the story and he lives the perfect life. And he never tells a lie. He has no sins. He has no generational sins. He has no far-reaching sin because he has no sin at all. And not only that, he has no sin at all. But then Corinthians tells us, he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf. So that we could be the righteousness of God. So the way that we get a new heart and the way we get a new spirit is Jesus lives the life that we couldn't live. And he dies the death that we should have died. And then he gives it to us for free. He says, I give it to you. I do what you can't ever do for you. And you see that over and over in the New Testament. In Titus 3, it says, but when the goodness 
and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, talking about Jesus. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness. That is, we didn't, we can't make up for past sins and do enough to earn our way. He says it doesn't work that way. He says, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. You see that? He gives you the Spirit and the Holy Spirit washes you and he makes you new. He does it for you. And then he says, the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And so what it says is Jesus comes and he does it for us. And we put our faith with him and then he gives us his spirit and his spirit comes in and he washes your heart clean and he gives you his spirit and a new heart. And that only comes through faith in Jesus Christ and nothing else. And that's why in Second Corinthians one, it says for all the promises of God, the promise of Jeremiah and of Ezekiel 18 and Jeremiah 31, for all the promises of God find their yes in him, the him being Jesus. That is why him That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us. And then he says at the very end here, and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. So the only way that we turn from mess upon mess and sin upon sin and stuff that weighs on us and the things that we've done is we stop and we confess our sin and he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin. And then he gives us his spirit and a new heart. And we don't know why his grace is so great that he says, all you have to do is acknowledge me and I give it to you. I do what you could never do on your own for you. That's the promise of the old. It's on every page of this book. It's here in Ezekiel 18. The way it's going to happen is a new heart and a new spirit. It's in Jeremiah. It's all the way through. Even though we're here in the big story walking through 700 years before Jesus would come here, it is pointing to this is how it's going to happen with Jesus. And no other way. And so we rejoice That God is so gracious and he is so loving that he's willing to take all of that, no matter where we are or where we've been, at any moment you stop and repent and he makes you new. And he gives you that relationship that we all yearn and want deeper than anything else. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you. We can never... We can never begin to thank you enough for the way that you deal with us so graciously in spite of ourselves, in spite of our sin, in spite of the sin that we've seen, the circumstances we've been in, that you come and you deal graciously with us, that you give us as a free gift by what you paid for, what you did on our behalf, that we just confess you and you give us your spirit and a new heart. We could never, ever begin to thank you enough. We just praise your name and we thank you for who you are and what you've revealed to us and what you've done for us in Jesus. We pray all this in his precious name. Amen.